Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. How's everybody doing today? This is Ryan Tansom, your host of Life After Business. Thanks everybody for coming back today. I am uh, really excited for today's episode. We have a guest named Andre Schnabel, who is a lead partner at Tenor Capital, and his background is amazing. He was a partner at Grant Thornton for most of his career, and over the last few years has gotten heavily involved into the, the ESOP world. He's here to give us a great understanding of how an ESOP can be part of your exit plan, if it's right for you, and what are the things to take in consideration, whether it's departure time, the financing behind it, and then how it affects your culture. So without further ado, hope you enjoy the interview with Andre. Good morning, Andre. How are you doing? Good morning, Ryan. Doing fine. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for showing up on the Life After Business podcast. I uh, appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this morning because you've got an interesting background and the topic of ESOPs, I think, is a mysterious situation. A lot of business owners are always curious to know a little bit more and your background reflects a lot of the different uh, complications that people get themselves into. So why don't you just give us a little bit of a background of where you came from and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Ryan, I, I'm a CPA by background. I joined a global accounting and business advisory firm uh, in the 70s in Africa, in Zimbabwe, which is where I'm from. Long story short, the firm moved me around the world and eventually to the United States. And I retired from the firm in 2012 uh, at the time, I was the managing partner of the firm in this part of the country. Very soon after retirement, while I was trying to figure out what my next chapter was going to look like, the phone rings and a gentleman who owned a movie production business in Atlanta says that he has received a term sheet to buy his business from a hedge fund in the Midwest and basically says, Andre, I'm a movie guy. I have no idea what my business is worth. I don't know how to go about selling it. I'm in my mid-60s. It seems like a smart thing to consider. Retirement is around the corner. So he retained me to help him negotiate an exit with this group in the Midwest. As I engaged with them and analyzed their offer and started negotiating, I happened to coincidentally meet Todd Butler, who is my partner currently. And uh, he and I, I told him a little bit about this particular transaction. He was an ESOP specialist. And he listened to this particular story and said, well, I'll sign a confidentiality agreement. Why don't I run this particular term sheet against an exit to an ESOP. And let's just see what they look like side by side. Interesting. Did you have any experience with ESOPs prior to that with uh, your background at uh, Grant Thornton? I had a little bit of exposure to them. My firm had 
represented a few ESOPs, but I have found out that even the largest of accounting and legal firms are not particularly well informed about ESOPs and don't think of them as a natural strategic exit tool for their business clients. So I had some exposure. I knew a little bit about them, but I didn't have any deep subject matter expertise at all. So Todd does this model and we get together and he puts one against the other and I look at it and I say, are you serious? <laughs> this looks terrific. All we have to do is go and find some money and get it financed. So when you, when you had the aha, like when you said this is terrific, what were some of the things that looked terrific about it? The fundamental economics of the exit were far more favorable for the selling shareholder of this movie production company than the term sheet he received from the hedge fund. And one of the assumptions that we made on the ESOP transaction is that the actual value of the business was going to be identical to the hedge fund offer. So it wasn't as if we were upping the price based on some hypothetical notion that the ESOP would pay more. We assumed the ESOP would pay the identical amount, but because of the structural differences and the tax efficiency afforded these transactions, the end result financially was far more compelling for the selling shareholder using the ESOP. So I went to my client, showed him the alternatives, and he said, wow, let's go and find the money, which we did. Went to his senior lender, his banker, and asked him whether they were prepared to uh, finance a leveraged ESOP buyout, which they gladly did. And basically that was the first one that Todd and I did. And that kind of, that's how you got to where you are today, huh? <laughs> that, that's basically uh, what happened. And that was over a dozen transactions ago in about 24 months. Wow, uh, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, it's a very, very active area. And people don't think of it naturally as an exit strategy. They generally think of it as an employee benefit, which it is. So why don't you, that's a perfect bridge into, why don't you give our listeners just a brief definition of what it is? Because I think there's, a, like I said, a lot of mystery behind uh, some of the mechanics behind it. Okay. Well, an ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. And an ESOP is basically a defined contribution benefit plan. It is very comparable with a 401k, but instead of employees investing in public securities, they are investing in the company's stock for whom they work. That is the fundamental difference. And so that is looking at it from an employee standpoint. So the employee basically has the ability to invest in the company, and the company itself 
is making that investment available to the employee through their own match, as they do with a 401k, except their match is in the form of company stock. And when the employee retires, they have the ability to have their account, the number of shares that they now have in their account, valued. And they are cashed out by the company. And the employee gets a wonderful benefit based on the success and value of the business. If one takes that construct and looks at it from the current owner's perspective, there is a way to take that employee stock ownership plan and effectively find financing and leverage it and essentially allow the selling shareholders to sell the entire business or any portion of the business to the trust in a leveraged transaction and then the trust over many many years releases those shares into the employee accounts as an employee benefit so you can take this wonderful employee benefit and through leverage create an exit strategy for the owners of the business over time that's effectively what a leveraged ESOP is all about. So I think that's a great, perfect definition, honestly, and one of the most straightforward ones I've heard in a long time. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can go from just that one definition. And maybe we'll start with the financing and how how it's funded because, you know, I've heard through my conversations with uh, owners or other professionals they think that the owner needs to pony up with a bunch of money right off the bat, you know, and there's a lot of different situations, whether there's key employees and how other people can get involved. So why don't you explain a little bit more about the leverage buyout and how, you know, whether it's, you know, of these dozen transactions or all the other ones that you've seen, how are they going about getting the financing and how does that look like for the owner? Sure. The one of the, the things to remember about these transactions is that they have enormous flexibility. And no two transactions are identical. One can effectively pull and push a number of levers to suit the specific needs of the selling shareholders. Some selling shareholders demand significant cash upfront Others are prepared to be patient if they can participate uh, in the form of a second bite of the apple. They're prepared to hang around and wait for their money for years, knowing that when they do collect, they're going to collect a much larger amount. There's enormous flexibility. But essentially, most sellers are looking for a sizable liquidity event at closing. The buyer is the trust, which we've just discussed. And the trust is formed by the sponsoring company, and the trust doesn't have any money at all. So the question is, how does a trust with no money buy a company and provide the selling shareholders with liquidity? And that is done 
by introducing a lender. And the lender can be a traditional bank or it could be a fund of some sort. It could be a non-regulated lender. It can be a variety of players who are in the credit markets depending on the characteristics of the business, its profitability, its size, and the amount of leverage that you need in order to meet the objectives, the liquidity objectives of the selling shareholders. So in a typical example, if you've got a business, let's say they're in the distribution space, and they are a business that produces $2 million worth of earnings each year, and let us just say that the business is worth $10 million. The trust buys the business for $10 million and goes to a financial institution. In this instance, let's just assume it's your traditional regulated bank. Depending on the strength of the balance sheet, let us say the bank says, we will lend you $5 million. The $5 million goes to the selling shareholders and it is secured by the company itself and the company's assets, which means that the sellers have now received 50% of the purchase price in cash today and they enter into a note for the remaining five million dollars, which will be paid to them over the next several years through the profitability of the business after the bank has been paid off. And in order to convince them to do such a thing, they are compensated usually with warrants attached to the notes, which gives them a very market uh, yield on those notes, which effectively gives them significant return, not only on the original sale of the business, but also on the notes that they took back to finance the business. So that is, I've just hit a few uh, highlights mm -hmm. that uh, outline the basic structure. One of the things that you mentioned in the question, which I would like to just respond to, is that this buyer, the trust, is represented by a trustee. We encourage an independent professional trustee to represent the buyer. And typically, that buyer is prepared to negotiate terms which are good for not only the employees, but to ensure the sustainability, profitability, growth, and health of the business itself. And accordingly, they are prepared for us to create a management incentive plan over and above the qualified plan sponsored by the trust itself. That management incentive plan allows the board to provide the leaders the next generation of leaders of the business added equity that gives them a significant stake in the success of the business going forward. And so the structure allows security for all 
into the future and eventually provides a path for the selling shareholders to retire and go to the beach. And then have the second generation or wave of management come in with equity as well as you were saying, correct? That is correct. And generally speaking, those management people are are embedded anyway. They are generally the leadership team that the selling shareholders have hired over the years. But this provides added incentive or an added tool to find more talent if there are gaps in their management team. But that effectively is one of the wonderful benefits of of this exit. So the selling shareholder not only gets market price for the business, they also get a wonderful return on the notes for financing the business and the employees, in addition to every employee participating, the leaders, the next generation of leaders get added equity that provides them with an incentive to stay with the business and build the business. That's fantastic. It's so, so a couple th- couple different uh, areas I want to go. First of all, you said the owner goes to the beach, and apparently that was not your route, huh? Because the beach <laughs> you lasted a few weeks. You said that is that is true, and and it, and it, and in many instances, business owners are selling their businesses not with the intent of going to the beach, but it's the beginning of a process of managing their wealth and managing their ultimate plan, uh, their estate plan. So it isn't necessarily, let's go to the beach, but it's simply a part of a long-term personal plan that uh, eventually will create liquidity for their estate and pass wealth to their family and to their children and charities and any other personal interest that they have. Well, and with the ESAP, it's a, a unique benefit where, so in the conversations that we have, uh, whether it's our um, other interviews or clients, the passing off wealth or legacy to their employees is a huge, you know, intrinsic value that they have and the ESAP allows it to do it. So a couple of things I want to, I want to go down the, the way that employees and culture and wealth is created in the second generation of management, but then I want to follow up and make sure we hit on the tax benefits of the ESAPs. But why don't you, you know, kind of explain or elaborate a little bit more on the management incentive plan? Because I think other private businesses are familiar with deferred compensation plans or something of that sort. Where how is it that they're actually buying into equity? Is it usually performance indicators or performance metrics that they're hitting and then allowed to buy in? via equity and shares that that route and then one step further is how does the entire mass besides just the management get on and work together because of the structure well you've touched on a number of very important and interesting issues the the cultural uh, element of the question is as you can imagine, uh, there is a there's a glue, there's a cultural connection when every employee is a shareholder of the business. When they get their annual account, 
that shows the value of their stake in the business. And they can see over time that the larger the business gets, the more profitable it gets, the more they benefit. Then the customer experience, the people that they are serving, or the way they relate to each other is enhanced because they all know that they have a vested interest in the success of the corporate entity. And so there's a huge cultural advantage. There are many businesses that, that advertise and applaud and celebrate the existence of an employee-owned business. You see it on websites. Uh, in, in, in many instances, when you speak to people who shop at employee-owned businesses, and I can think of a few specific examples, know full well that this is an employee-owned business because of the way they are treated the moment they walk into the store, for example. So there is a huge cultural element. Uh, it is a, a very, it's difficult to quantify, but one data point that has empirical support is that there is a lot of data out there that can substantiate that the loan from the bank that we talked a little earlier about in this conversation, that the default rates of those bank loans with ESOPs is far lower than the traditional default rates to non-ESOP entities. I can't tell you why. All I can tell you is that that is a fact that has been proven true over many decades. These things have been around since the 60s. And so there is either a cultural uh, advantage that is driving financial performance in addition to the terrific tax advantages for both the seller and the company, which we actually haven't talked about yet. So that is, uh, that is certainly enormous benefit. Going to the management incentive plan, at no point in time does anybody, any employee, whether it is the entire employee group participating in the ESOP or whether it's the leaders, the new leaders of the business that are being part, who are participants in the management incentive plan, in no instance will those individuals have to pay for the stock. These are essentially, uh, let's call them benefits that are being granted to the leadership for performance. And that performance can be defined in any way that the selling shareholders choose to define it. It is, has enormous flexibility and it can be discriminatory. One might, for example, say, I'm going to give 3% of this business to my CFO based on these particular key performance metrics and he will vest over 10 years, or I'm going to give 7% to my CEO, in, and that's going to be driven based on annual free cash flow over the next five years. There can be 
enormous diversity tailor-made to each particular recipient, there is a lot of flexibility. That's fantastic because flexibility when you're dealing with people and incentives, I mean, it, you know, I think you, you opened up, you know, a lot of the conversation with that where they're all little levers, right? And making sure that they're meshed around the people, the cultures, incentive, the industry um, gives you even that much more flexibility. Exactly. So now we'll get to the fun part that I know every single business owner extremely cares about, which is the taxes. And why don't you give, you know, the highlight and we can, you know, continue to drill down depending on uh, each section. But what are the, some of the tax advantages, why, why people end up going about doing it? There are a number of key elements to this particular topic. The first and possibly the best known benefit of these plans is that the selling shareholders can structure the transaction in such a way that they don't have to pay capital gains on the exit. So taking the example that we used earlier, I have a business that is valued at $10 million. And let us assume that the selling shareholders were the founders. In all probability, their tax basis in their stock is nominal. Effectively, the $10 million is value that they've created over years and years and years, which means that their gain effectively is, for purposes of this discussion, let's assume, is $8 million. So you've got a capital gain of $8 million, and depending on what state you live in, you will find yourself paying about 28% in capital gains. That is the federal rate of 20%. We've got a 3.8% tax, which is an outcome of the uh, Affordable Health Care Act. And we have state tax. That significant bite can be removed if you sell your business to an ESOP. It's a unique benefit afforded ESOPs to encourage selling shareholders to exit in this manner as a matter of public policy. So you can imagine that is a huge benefit. In the $8 million gain example, we're talking about something like $2.5 million worth of tax being saved. I will tell you, without getting into the technical weeds, that there are a number of things that one needs to essentially uh, recognize structurally in order to ensure that you lock that gain in. But without getting into those details, the, the, uh, this particular benefit, which is uh, essentially provided for under Section 1042 of the tax code, is usually uh, enjoyed by most selling shareholders to an ESOP. Enjoyed is, is a good word. <laughs> yeah, it is, uh, it is just an enormous benefit. The second benefit, which goes to the entire concept of leverage, which we talked about earlier, here we've got a company that's borrowing lots of money from the bank, 
and lots of money from the selling shareholders and all of a sudden has lots of debt, one of the big questions is, will we be able to afford to repay that debt? To in, uh, essentially uh, provide a higher probability of that happening and happening in fairly short order, there is a special opportunity being afforded under the tax code, which allows this profitable business to pay substantially less tax than it did before the transaction and over time become a non-tax paying entity. In other words, zero tax. So we have an enormous preservation of cash essentially taken out of the pockets of Uncle Sam and put into the pockets of the bank and the selling shareholders. So going back to that original um, example that you had brought up with the $10 million valuation and the $5 million, $5 million loan and then a $5 million note, the $5 million loan is then paid back to the bank pre-tax, correct? It is paid back pre-tax. That's exactly right. And the note to the shareholders is also paid off pre-tax. And when you think about it, most corporations spend probably 40% of their earnings on taxes. So you can appreciate that a dollar of earnings uh, essentially demands 40% being paid to Uncle Sam, leaving only 60 cents in the dollar available to the stockholders and to grow the business, that entire dynamic changes significantly under the structure of an ESOP. Well, and not only the, the, the savings on tax over the long term, but, you know, the the significant increase in cash flow makes the business so much more healthy. And so for our listeners, when you're talking about saving 40% on cash flow, I know back in my old business, we could have used you know even half of that. So allowing the, the managers and the employees to hit key performance metrics easier because of the increase in cash flow, and then allowing the business to grow and use that cash into other areas to diversify or increase the size of their business. And then correct me if I'm wrong, Andre, but also when an ESOP wants to diversify and grow and maybe acquire additional businesses, those additional businesses are also able to be paid for pre-tax, correct? Well, you, uh, Ryan, you're touching on another topic that certainly uh, provides a wonderful advantage for uh, ESOPs. And the list, by the way, goes on and on and on. We are unlikely to be able to touch on all of them. But you're absolutely correct. As we discussed earlier, a sale to an ESOP allows the selling shareholders to defer and potentially defer permanently any capital gains tax. That means that an ESOP-owned company, which is considering 
growth strategically through acquisitions can provide the target acquisitions the same benefit that the selling shareholders of the sponsor received. So I go out and I say, I want to buy a competitor in order to grow the ESOP company. The competitor's selling shareholders can sell into the trust and receive the tax deferral and elimination of capital gains just as the original selling shareholders. And that allows the acquirer, the ESOP-owned business, enormous negotiating power when considering acquisitions as a growth strategy. Well, no kidding, because if you're going to buy a business and you don't need to pay taxes on it, you could possibly pay less. I'm, or, I'm sorry, possibly right. pay more, allowing you to have a, a higher probability of even winning the bid against any other local competitors or whatnot. That's right. Or alternatively, pay less because the selling shareholders don't have to pay their tax. So you, somehow you split the benefit between seller and buyer and mm. everybody's better off. Yeah, and interesting. So I know I know we can keep rolling on the the benefits, but there's a couple of things that I want to do before we we wrap up. And you know, there's a lot of things to take into consideration whether this is the route for you and how you go about even exploring this. Um, why don't you maybe explain some of the reasons that you wouldn't do it? And the one in particular that I'm thinking of, and then you can elaborate on it, is. You know, even the style of how the owner runs their business and, you know, the, in today's world, it's, you know, a lot of people call it open book management because the things that people have to think about when now a trust owns their business and they are no longer the owner and what are some of the things, um, what are some of the deal killers behind it? Well, let me pr provide you with a few data points that will uh, essentially remove some of the misconceptions that you have just implied. The first is that the selling shareholders continue to control the business. They are not removing control and providing the trust with the ability to run that business or control the business. Nothing has happened from a control perspective until the selling shareholders are long gone. They will appoint the entire board. They can fire the trustee. They decide on it that all day-to-day -day operating decisions, nothing has changed. So it's extremely important that selling shareholders don't consider this a typical sale where the buyer is now in control. In this case, the seller remains in control until they've got 100% of their money out of the, out of the deal. And, uh, and in fact, under certain circumstances, they can continue to control thereafter uh, because of their warrant positions. So that is, that is an, a very important that is. Uh, issue to consider. Um, now, why does this not work for everybody? Well, as we've talked about, most of these deals, there is some proportion of the sales price that is being financed by the sellers. For a seller that wants to get a check 
notwithstanding they'll pay capital gains on that check and move to the Okefenokee swamp and wash their hands of the entire business and throw the keys on the table, an ESOP is not the preferred exit plan. That is one reason that you would not consider an ESOP. The, there, are other, uh, there are other kinds of businesses which cannot be leveraged. For example, if a business is, uh, is a newly minted entity, early stage business, growing at 20 or 30% per year, it's, it needs to preserve all of its profitability and cash to essentially fuel the growth. You cannot leverage those businesses excessively. These businesses generally are leveraged as a way to be, uh, as a practical way to fund the purchase price. And so generally we're looking for fairly mature businesses, profitable businesses, businesses that have fairly solid balance sheets, growing but not growing like uh, a house on fire. So we're looking at stable, mature businesses generally. We're looking at businesses across a broad range of industries. They're, these things work for real estate operators. They work for wholesale, distribution, manufacturing, professional services, construction companies. They're, Broad range. We've we've done. We've just closed a deal in the food and beverage space. So there is enormous diversity. But the characteristic in common is the uh, the issues that I've talked about earlier. And I will also say, from a practical standpoint, because of regulatory constraints under the laws of ERISA, which are the same body of law that controls 401ks, etc. If the, if the company doesn't have 15 employees plus, you run into technical and structural issues. So there has to be enough meat in the bone in the business in order for an ESOP to be a desirable exit strategy. Uh, so that's very, very well summed up. I appreciate that. So now... If I, you know, for our listeners or anybody that would be interested in saying, is this right for me? What is the process that you usually go through in order to understand where they sit? The, the, the general approach that is used and the, the approach that is used by my firm, Tena Capital Partners, is if after conversations such as this, an educational process, the selling shareholders say, you know what, this is something that on its face sounds really interesting. How do I flush it out a little further in order for me to get a real sense as to what this means for me? One would do a feasibility study. That feasibility study would establish the fair value of the business. It would map out basic assumptions on leverage, on cash flows. It would map out the tax implications and it would all be put together in a financial model that is 
easily digestible by the selling shareholders and their trusted advisors. And you can even put it up against alternative exit strategies, just as we did at the outset of this call talking about that movie production company. So that a selling shareholder can say, this is what an ESOP exit looks like, this is what an assumed exit would look like if I sold to that guy around the corner that keeps on competing with me, or a sale to a financial buyer such as a private equity crowd. And he can look at this feasibility study and if at that point he says it looks like a go, then you move to the, the debt raising and execution portions of the transaction. And then from start to finish, what is the typical time frame? I find that the, the period before a selling shareholder even decides to do the ESOP is the longest part of the process. The process during which selling shareholders learn what an ESOP is, establish whether it's something that essentially meets their personal priorities, that can take anything from weeks to months to years before they decide to actually do something about it. Once they've actually come to terms with the fact that this ESOP is something that they really would like to get serious about, and a firm such as ours is engaged, the first feasibility stage is likely to take 30 days or so. And from the point at which the selling shareholder decides, yes, I like the feasibility, it's credible, let's do it. I would say that in addition to that 30-day period, one needs an additional 90, 120 days. Could be longer, but generally speaking, I'd say three to four months after the selling shareholders have decided to give the green light. That's perfect. So again, it kind of wraps back to making sure that the owners have an idea of what they want. It sounds like it's always the major, the, the major issue, which is what do you want and how does this affect your ultimate goal? Yeah, exactly. And that is, you know, each, each business and owners of each business uh, are wired very differently. They react emotionally very differently. There is a lot of confusion provided by their trusted, trusted advisors who may have some of the misconceptions that I hope we have debunked during this conversation. So each scenario is very different. Uh, we always like to get trusted advisors in the room right at the outset so that you're not only responding to questions and concerns of the selling shareholders, but also of those uh, provided and exhibited by advisors so that everybody is in the same boat uh, earlier rather than it being a drawn-out process. Well, then making sure you understand why the specific advisors are leading you in one direction, you know, how they're getting paid is always a big, huge <laughs> situation involved. Right. Exactly. 
Well, Andre, I very much appreciate the time that you spent with us today. And I'm, I think there was a lot of great gold nuggets for us and our listeners. And um, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you today, what is the best way? Well, I, my telephone number, uh, 404-372-2759. And my email address, a schnabel. Actually, I'll give you a preferred email address, Andre, A-N-D-R-E, at tenacap.com. That's T-E-N-O-R-C-A-P.com. Perfect, and I'll put those in the show notes. Well, again, thank you very much, Andre. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. Nice to speak to you.